Welcome to breakout session number four. This is the church finance and administration question session. This is the now third year in a row that I have cheated and prepared absolutely nothing to say. So this session will be as long or very short as you all make it. <laughs> um, uh, my name is Shelby Pratt. I am the finance director for the Ohio Ministry Network. We are in uh, Merrick Hall, room 202. I'm also serving as your host for the day, so if you have any questions, I'm going to have double duty. Uh, again, if you are not aware, there is coffee available in Gray's Chapel in the main lobby where the se- main sessions are being held and restrooms are located on each floor of the building. For the benefit of those who are listening to this session as a recording, we would appreciate that you would hear uh, silence your cell phones and devices so as not to be a disruption. Uh, as I mentioned, I serve as the finance director for the Ohio Ministry Network here in Columbus. Uh, you can reach me at 614-396-0700. My email address is simply Shelby, S-H-E-L-B-Y, at ohioministry.net. I am always happy to talk with you on the phone or email, and frankly, I almost prefer phone call because inevitably an email turns into very lengthy communications back and forth as your questions change and my answers change. So it's uh, Ellen, who's over here to my left, uh, knows one of the things, or she might have recognized one of the things that I do very often is when I start answering a question, I might start answering it one way with this answer in mind, and by the time I've actually start, finished talking, it's actually over here somewhere. Um, because I think out loud, and very often I will, I will start off with a no, I can't do that, and then I'll think and talk and think and talk, and, well, maybe this would work. And so I'm happy to help you with that. If I can, over the phone at the office, I'm always happy to do that. Um, I want to, just as you are sitting there thinking, well, he didn't prepare anything, what are we supposed to do? Well, this is a Q&A session that I have enjoyed doing the last couple of years. It's never been a boring time. I hope it's never been a wasted time for anybody that has participated because uh, it's fun for me. The reason that I do this and not something specific, and every year I think of what I like to do <laughs> specific is uh, what I like to do, you know, I, as opposed to doing something that's a specific topic, is that I much prefer, and, and Ellen knows also from when I came a while back and I did an internal control assessment for, for Lima First, which is something that I do out of my office. If you are unaware of that, I don't get to as many as I would like to in a year just because I'm always very busy. Um, I, my goal when I came to the office was to try to do two per month. <laughs> that was a funny goal. Um, I am lucky to do about seven a year. Um, when I get out into one of our churches and help them. It is not a full CPA audit. I'm not that level. I'm not a CPA. Uh, I have an MBA, but not a CPA. Um, But I have been in church administration and church accounting for now 18 years, almost 19 years in some capacity. Um, And so um, it's what I do. Um, Lacking a CPA designation hasn't kept me from having work, so... I've never gone back to get one. 
um, when I have a true tax question, I call my brother who is a CPA. And when he, had, when he was a church treasurer for a church in Kansas when they lived there and he had a minister's tax question, he would call me. Because how many are ministers in this room? Oh, good. Then we get to talk about them. All right. Hey, I am a minister, but we are strange animals when it comes to taxation. So if you are a bookkeeper or a treasurer, you are well aware of that. We are strange animals in that regard. And, and <laughs> you're married to one, I know, so you know he's a strange animal. <laughs> I won't tell him you said that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, so it's just been a long time that I've been in this, in this world, and so I love doing it. I'm happy to help you if I can in any way. Um, when I come in and do a church audit, it's an internal control assessment, focusing more on the process of what you do in your church with the assumption, safe or not, the assumption that then the product of, those, of that process is a sound product, meaning if you're doing everything right, then you should be getting the right results in the end. Um, so I'm always happy to help if you do have a specific question. I want to, before I start taking questions, just mention a few things uh, because they've been around here today and wanted to just highlight them for you again. Uh, if you are unaware, uh, the company that is this, one of the sponsors, we have two sponsoring companies. One that we've, we had actually on stage in the first general session is Tithely. The other uh, company that is a sponsor of our, of our uh, Synergy Conference is Aplos. Aplos, A-P-L-O-S dot com. Aplos dot com. Aplos is an online accounting system. There was a workshop for it. So if you, missed the, if you missed the workshop, unfortunately, because it very much was a demo using a screen, um, the audio may not be wonderfully helpful to you, but there will be audio recordings of all of the Synergy sessions, um, all of the Synergy sessions available on our website in the ne- very near future, and you'd be able to download and listen to that. Make sure I get through all of the stuff I was been, I've been instructed to do. Since this is a true Q&A question, anybody please, uh, as something comes up, even if I'm talking about something else and something comes in your mind, write that question down really quick and, and then raise your hand the next time we get to a point because we will have that. We want to make sure we get all of those addressed for you. Um, how do you do all that? So Aplos is the first and only thoroughly online accounting solution for churches. Um, It is not tied to any specific church management product, so it is not tied to a specific church database. Uh, The reason they built this, it was built by a former church administrator who recognized the lack that some of the -the off-the-shelf accounting software products had in trying to deal with churches. QuickBooks comes the very closest probably through what they call their nonprofit edition. And if you use their class functionality in uh, QuickBooks, you get very close to fund accounting. This is native fund accounting for churches and other nonprofits. Um, Josh Williford, one of our presbyters from the Akron area, did a demo of it during our first session today. They've sponsored our lunch today. Um, I am using them as a church planter in addition to being full-time as, a, as the network finance director. My wife and I are planting a church uh, in the Worthington area. We're not in Worthington yet. We're meeting in, in 
Upper Arlington area initially until we find that permanent location. We are using, um, she's the lead pastor, by the way, not me. That's why I can still work full time. Um, we're, it's an exciting adventure for us. We are using Aplos for our accounting, and I'm absolutely loving it um, because, again, it is built to be, it is built to be a non-accountant accounting program. It is, it is, if you've used, even just used Quicken for your personal finance or the old Microsoft money, uh, which I still use and hope it never, it's still installed on Windows 10 and I was thrilled. Um, they haven't made it for about seven years. Uh, but it's very friendly. It's not built for an accountant. It's built for a lay person that doesn't do accounting professionally. Very simple. Um, and we have the ability, I have some cards, since not everybody, again, may have been in that first session today, I will leave these up here on this table, that if you are interested in establishing, establishing an account with Aplos, they, and, you, and you do it through me, basically, through our office, we have the ability to set up an account for you. We can ask them to extend the 15-day trial out for 30 days, so you'll get a full month to really use it. If you sign up then for a long-term subscription, they will give you 40% off of your first six months of service, uh, which starts at $25 a month. That's, the, that's their monthly for their one-user basic accounting, which is like what I'm using in my world right now. Um, they will give you 40% off for the first six months, which when you get the longer trial period and then the discount, it's about three months of free service when you kind of roll it all together if you stacked it up. Um, so something I definitely would uh, point you to, even if you have a product that you love, one of the awesome things about Aplos is down at the bottom of their page, they have this thing called Academy. They actually have free training videos for anyone. It's just on their website that you can go to to learn about nonprofit accounting, uh, fundraising, nonprofit business plans, uh, because they, do, they work in that world as well. But they actually have a whole video series on what is fund accounting, how to, make, you know, how to do your various entries and everything. And it is a great little product. If you all are, if you all are interested, and we have time at the end, I'd be happy to show you what this actually looks like but we did have a demo of it earlier in the day. Ellen, can I impose on you to get me a bottle of water or a cup of water from downstairs? Yeah. I'm parched, thank you. So, who's first? See, I told you this is going to be as long or as short as you guys want it to be because this is all a Q&A session. Yes, sir? With the healthcare changes. This is supposed to be on me. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be repeating every question for audio purposes. The question was in regards to healthcare: is how does something like health, like Samaritan uh, Christian Healthcare Ministries, MediShare, how does that compare to health insurance, and how do you account for it? Okay. Uh, how do they compare? Well, I'll start with the easy part of the answer: that all three of those are options that I'm aware of. Uh, there may be others. Those are the only three that I know by name um, that are available. They are known as far as what the IRS calls them. The IRS calls them a health sharing ministry. That's the vernacular of the IRS. I'm trying to push this cable out of the way so I don't trip on it. Um, 
It's called a health sharing ministry. It is specifically, they are specifically allowed for within the Affordable Care Act, meaning they are an option that someone can have instead of a health insurance plan. Um, now, where things start to go differently is, I'm going to, so that was the first part of a two-part answer, and the second part has an A and a B. Answer A for a health-sharing ministry and how do you account for that is d- depends on how you are structured as far as staffing. Um, the health care, the Affordable Health Care Act has specific provisions in it. Actually, it was, it was in a, kind of an addendum. It was an IRS notice, basically, where they were saying how they would em- employ the uh, Affordable Care Act. And that is that if you have a group plan, thank you so much, and to say it's a group plan is kind of a misnomer because it's a group of one. But if you have a plan, let me back up a little bit to answer the question. I apologize. This is how I answer questions. Alan can tell you that. In 1961, the IRS made it possible for an employer to, to provide health care coverage for its employees as a fringe as a non-taxable fringe benefit. So going back to 1961, that's when you could have uh, group health and plans that the employer paid for for an employee. It also allowed for the scenario that an employer could, could pay for an individual's plan and reimburse them or pay directly to the carrier, going back to 1961. And there was no... So if John worked for Walmart and Walmart but he had a plan somewhere else, not a Walmart plan, they could, he could turn his bill in and get reimbursed for what he paid for insurance, or they could send a payment directly to that insurance company. It still would be considered a tax-free benefit. That all changed with the Affordable Care Act, so that if you have one person, the technical language for the IRS notice is less than two participants. That's how they define one. They don't say one. They said less than two participants. So if you are a church that has only one, and, they, and the technical language is participant, but that has kind of been broadened to say one employee because it's safer because no one honestly knows how the IRS is really going to, if they decide to, if they decide to start addressing it, you know, how would it really get translated? But the language in the IRS notice says participant. So that's what I have told people. So if you have only one person on your payroll at your church for which the church is either reimbursing, which is the preferred way to do it, is to reimburse what they've already paid, or paying directly for an individual plan, that is still okay. Meaning the church can still provide for Pastor Smith, and, and that plan can include the wife, but it's because you've got one participant, and that's the, that's the employee of the church. Uh, you've got one participant being covered. The church can reimburse for that coverage, and there is no tax consequence to Pastor Smith. But Pastor Jones works at a church where he and they want to provide insurance for the youth pastor and the children's pastor and the music pastor. And they have been doing that, and they were okay to do that through June of last year. But now they're not. It's not okay to do that anymore. 
And the way I'll tell you how to address it before I do that, if you are in that situation, I don't want you to raise your hands, but if you're in that situation and say, oh, no, I just learned that I'm doing something we're not supposed to be doing. If you are in that situation where you have more than one employee on the church for whom the church is reimbursing or paying directly for a private individual health plan and they ever come knocking, the penalty is $100 a day per person. So if it's... If you're less than one, less than two, you're okay because only one. But as soon as you have two people, then it's two hundred dollars a day, basically, for however many days you're out of compliance. So don't do that. So how do you account for it? So now you're in that church. You do want to provide insurance, and this is probably the most common uh, question uh, I have been getting lately since the Affordable Care Act came into play. We've actually had our health insurance broker has been here the last couple of years to talk. Um, probably one of the most common questions that I get is how do you then, how do you deal with it? Um, here is what I recommend. Well, my first and easy recommendation is easy for me to say, and it's hard for the church to implement. Look into getting a group health, an employer-sponsored group health insurance plan. Then you're going to come back and say, Shelby, they're way too expensive. I can't do that. So I'm just going to say, well, I was hoping. Shoot, I wish you could have done that. But now here's how you're probably going to have to do it. So what you need to do then for everyone that you do want to provide health care coverage for, you need to give them all a raise. And you need to make sure that the raise is very clearly a raise that actually has absolutely nothing to do with health insurance whatsoever. I know that's hard to say, hard to do, but should it ever come back that you were providing funds that were specifically to help someone not get a group plan, then that could actually be a penalty for the church to face, not the individual, but another penalty for the church to face. So you want to give everybody a raise that needs insurance. You say, well, now they have taxable income. Yes, they initially have taxable income. One thing I do know about churches is church compensation for most of its ministers are not high. For most ministers also, they are allowed to take a housing allowance, which is an exclusion from their salary. So while they may have a reasonable, let's say they even have a thirty-five dollars to $40,000 compensation package, but if they take 20 of that off for housing from a $40,000 salary, now their taxes is only being, are only being calculated on the $20,000. So, so you're, think of just a gross income. We're in tax season. Anybody here do their own taxes? You know what I'm talking about. The 1040, that bottom of page one, is your adjusted gross income. Ministers have a low adjusted gross income compared to many others that would be in similar level of responsibility because of the housing allowance. That doesn't mean their tax bill is low because they paid self-employment taxes that you probably didn't have to pay. That's another discussion if you have a question about that, we'll be next question. Um, but they have a lower federal income tax um, in uh, adjusted gross income. So giving them that raise is not maybe not detrimental to their tax bill because now every dollar they pay for premiums for that private health insurance plan that they have is likely going to end up being a deduction on their tax return, especially if they own a home, and so they're already, they're already itemizing deductions on their tax return. 
Because if they're already itemizing deductions, yes, you may have increased their compensation even $10,000, but if they're already itemizing deductions and they're going to pay $10,000 in medical premiums, they're going to get every penny of that reverted to pre-tax. Does that make sense? It's a roundabout way to do it. I know. I know. It's a roundabout way to do it, but that is a way to make it a reality. So give them a raise. They're going to pay their bill. They're going to do their taxes. They're going to hopefully get most of those dollars deducted as medical expenses that were out of pocket. And therefore, it may not actually mean a tax increase because they got a compensation increase. They do. Now they're going to have to pay, and they they're already paying that on whatever. And here's how you and if and if and the theory and the thought behind what most churches are wanting to do because if they're doing this, they're wanting to they're wanting to do this because the individual plan that Pastor Smith can get is far less expensive than what it might be on a group plan. And I do understand that. Believe me, the Obama, the Affordable Care Act. Can you, can you back that up, please, and re- erase that? The Affordable Care Act is anything but. Um, the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, is just, uh, yeah. So um, they still have to pay the self-employment taxes. What you can do and what any, any church can do is, if you desire to, the reason the churches are wanting to do that is because it's cheaper for that individual plan than a group plan. So if that's the case the church wants to, they can provide additional income just to help with that tax bill. Now, that's going to lead me into another discussion because if you are unaware that ministers paid self-employment taxes, yes, they do. Uh, They pay because they are not subject to uh, FICA like a regular employee because the IRS says you're self-employed in regards to Social Security and Medicare, so only in regards to those taxes. Um, And so, yes ministers have a higher tax bill because of that. But the church is able, if the church has the wherewithal and the desire to do so, the church can assist with that additional liability. Um, Self-employment reimbursement or self-employment assistance, whatever you want to call it, the church can assist with that at any dollar amount. They could pay none of it. They could pay all of it. If they pay any of it, the only only, uh, issue is that whatever dollar they pay has to be considered taxable income. So every little bit, it, yes, it does. But it, it is very helpful, though. Um, let me just give you an example. I'm a minister, and I am treated as such by the Ohio Ministry Network. From my compensation, I, I do have to pay self-employment taxes. Not that I hope of leaving anytime soon. I don't. But if I ever get replaced with a non-minister and they give him or her the exact same wage that I have, they actually gave him or her a raise because I am paying what they are going to start paying in self-employment and Social Security Medicare taxes. So, um, but that's just, that's just an example for you. So if, if, yeah, if there's still a value, like so $1,000 is what it would cost for that individual plan for a whole family, for a pastor's family, and it would be $1,500 for them to provide that same coverage in a group health insurance plan. I'm throwing out numbers. I have no idea how close or off I am. Well, if it's a value to the church to save 500 and maybe give another $100 towards the tax bill, they're still saving $400 overall. That's just, again, it's up to the 
prerogative and the desire of the church. Does that answer your question well enough? Yes, sir. Here's the wonderful thing. The housing is only, sorry, question is, in regards to Social Security, Medicare, to FICA, self-employment taxes, is that before or after the housing allowance is factored in? Housing allowance only affects federal income taxes, state income taxes, local income taxes. It has nothing to do with Social Security and Medicare. So every dollar that a minister receives is subject to self-employment taxes. So every, every dollar is subject. So if, if in that scenario that I gave a while ago of a $40,000 compensation package, 20 of its salary, 20 of its housing, you're paying 20000 is subject to income taxes, 40000 is subject to Social Security and Medicare through self-employment. That answer your question? It did, yeah. Okay. Correct. The question is, do you have to pay the, the uh, Social Security and Medicare self-employment tax on the, the fair rental value of a parsonage? And yes, that is treated the same as if it was cash received. The value of that home is a, is a, there is a dollar value to that individual, though there's actually no cash changing hands. There is a dollar value that has to be subject to self-employment taxes, unfortunately. And then that is something that many churches don't understand. They, they don't, you know, they're trying to get that youth pastor. They can't really pay them a whole lot of money. But, hey, we have a parsonage here. And they don't realize that there is a tax bill that's associated with that free house. Um, so best case scenario is, they, hey, we'll also provide this to help you with your tax burden. That would be awesome, but it doesn't usually happen, unfortunately. You got a question? Yeah, does a church have to supply insurance for their employees? Great question. Does a church have to supply insurance for its employees? If any organization, so I'm just going to broaden it, if any organization has the full-time equivalent of 50 employees, yes. Most churches in our fellowship here in Ohio come nowhere near that. Yeah. It's, you do not have to provide anything if you do not meet that standard. So mo, I don't think any of our churches would, and I guess if there's those, if if they have maybe a Christian school or a daycare, but only if they're operating under the same EIN in that scenario, would that really be an issue? Yeah, Ken. If you offer insurance to one pass or one staff person, you have to offer it to all the staff people that fit that, whatever that category is. If you offer insurance to one individual, one pastor, do you have to offer it to everybody? I'm going to give the short, safe answer. Yes, um, especially if you have a, especially if you have a, an employer-sponsored group health plan. Now, I'm going to come back. I said I'm, the short, safe answer is yes. I'm going to come back to the but maybe again. I, I told you I'm going to say no and then come back to yes later. So we'll kind of do the opposite. Um, if you have an employer-sponsored group health plan, then yes, you have to provide the same type of coverage. But you only have to provide the same type of coverage within the same classes of employees. And so maybe this is where some churches think, well, we can't do a group health plan because I, I can't get insurance for my pastor and for my, my pastors and for my support staff. You do not have to provide the same level of coverage for both. You can create classes of employees. At our office, 
at our office, we have our administrators and then we have support staff and we provide one level of benefit for our support staff and a higher level of benefit for our administrators because we have those classes of employees structured. Um, now, if you uh, provide in, here in Ohio, if you provide any group plan, a health, employer sponsored group health plan, then any individual who works an average of 26 hours a week for, I believe it's 26 weeks out of the year, then they have to be on your insurance plan if you provide an employer-sponsored plan. Now, coming back to your answer earlier, I mean, technically, since you don't have an, if you don't have an employer group health plan, then you can provide different levels of benefits uh, to folks. I would highly not do, recommend not doing that just because it would cause more of an administrative headache than it's worth because exceptions are always a bear to deal with. Um, you know, I, what you could do, what I have heard of some churches doing is that you may not provide a group health plan, or an employer group health plan, but you let everybody get one that you'll reimburse for, which we can't do that anymore, unfortunately, but you can, again, increase their compensation scenario to, to accommodate that. So... No. Oh, this is, I, I'm, this is still on the same topic. So I yeah. Okay, well then. Um, Don't forget. I want. Um, on the deductions for the health insurance you mentioned, is it, not, is it a dollar for dollar? I thought it was only everything over 7.5% of their adjusted business. Right. And I'm going back to the, going back to the, um, going back to the fact that ministers have a low, 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 rate anyways because the kind the two kind of that's what i'm saying it's not gonna may not be dollar for dollar but you may get a lot of that back and then on the samaritan ministries do they let you deduct that the same as traditional health insurance because you what i have been for years i'm going to say i don't know the answer to that question the question was if you have something like a, a health sharing ministry can you deduct that as your health out-of-pocket health insurance premiums i honestly don't know the, the answer to that question I did have a meeting with Christian Healthcare Ministries last summer, and I was impressed with the system they have in place. Um, they actually have, through a partnership with a with legal counsel that they have, a way of building their plan into being something that an employer could provide as an employer-sponsored group health plan. Um, I haven't done that yet. I'm still only a little leery of I felt safer doing it since they said that it does count as credible coverage for the Affordable Care Act. And that's a re and that's a, reason a reasonable argument to make that it is credible coverage because the ACA specifically allows for it. And that it's just that verbiage is not anywhere that I've seen unfortunately that says that health sharing ministries are uh, because well I guess the question would also be, are you claiming, because some of those call those gifts to health sharing ministries. So are you claiming it as a gift? As or, right. Yeah, so that's the thing. You can't, you don't want to double dip there. You can't do the, you can't do one or the other. So, so. Yeah, yeah. All right. Your question. Sure.
Okay, first question is, someone who has given a gift in kind for a specific project at a church, such as landscaping, how do you properly acknowledge that and provide that individual a charitable contribution receipt? Or acknowledgement, I'm going to say acknowledgement. Um, first thing that you will want to do is thank them profusely for their support of your ministry, hand them back all of their receipts after you have written a letter that itemizes the items given with no dollar amounts attached to that letter whatsoever. It is not up to the recipient organization to put a value on what was given. It is up to the donor to prove the value of what was given. I battled this as a youth pastor in my first full-time ministry position. Somehow I ended up being the church bookkeeper as well, which was okay because I found $5,000 the church didn't know they had. Um, And a small church, that was a lot of money for a church of 150 people on a great day. Um, You know, so um, I battled this because there was actually an individual in the church who was not sure how his funds would be spent if he contributed cash. He didn't trust individuals. I hate to say that, but that is the reality. So he would give a lot, and he did a lot. And my pastor said, please provide him acknowledgement with this. And I, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I wrote that letter. I gave him back everything. Well, no, I want this listed on my giving report. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that for you. And my pastor came to me and says, you need to do this for him. And I was like, I can't do that. Literally had to go to the IRS local office, stand in line, and Julie came with me. We were single or married at the time, no kids, so she was able to just come with me. And we stood in line at the IRS office in, uh, I won't say, uh, <laughs> it wasn't in this state. Stood in line at the IRS office for, I don't know, an hour or more for the answer that I was going to ask them to give me because I knew it was the answer. And Sure enough, I said, here's, here's the situation. I just need you to confirm to me that I am not supposed to provide a dollar amount acknowledgement for a gift in kind. Oh, absolutely. That's correct. Thank you very much. I was, there for, I was talking to her for three minutes after waiting in line for an hour. So, give, so a, you need a, a letter that is contemporaneous uh, for a gift in kind that translates to 30 days. Um, Contemporaneous, contemporary, same time period. So it has it need, is what contemporaneous is standing for. But in the, in in a gift and kind scenario, you're talking thirty days. Now we don't do that for our church offerings very much because we know we're going to do that annual giving statement. Um, and again, in regards to annual giving statements, most people, unless unless they give an individual gift of two hundred and fifty dollars or more, they don't even have to have a giving statement. It's only for those individual gifts of 250 or more. Most software systems just put them all together as, as a list. That's fine. But each, each gift of 250 needs to be acknowledged. But in this case, when you're talking gift in kind, 30 days to respond with a letter acknowledging their gift. You just, you know, name, date. Thank you so much for supporting our ministry. If you want to email me, Shelby at OhioMinistry.net, I actually have a sample a template that I have used uh, when I've need, needed to acknowledge a gift in kind. And then it just has bullet points. Thank you for your gifts. Uh, your gift of however many bags of mulch, however many you know, uh, p- 
pieces of plywood or, or two by fours or whatever it might have been that they were that they were giving, um, you know. Uh, and then at the bottom, you need to put the traditional unless unless otherwise noted, no goods or services were received in exchange for your contribution. But what will be absent from that letter is any dollar amount. You simply give them that. Take this letter, put, this, put your receipts with this letter. That's all you need to satisfy the IRS requirement. And then when Is they that, do their taxes, they include those to get the deduction. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, this is B question. Oh, this is 2A1. 2A2. Okay, here we go. Okay. You could do that. I mean, again, if they want to do it as a true gift in kind, that's fine. What you what here here's what I have come across. Services cannot be donated. I don't know if you were aware of that or not. Services cannot be donated. So if you have a professional organization that wants to donate services, thank them very much and ask them for a bill because they, you cannot give them an, an acknowledgement for four hours at whatever their normal hourly rate is, et cetera, et cetera. You can't, you can't acknowledge that. But what you can do is trust them. Now, in this case, they were already planning to pay for it, so they're not too worried about the expense. I've been in a situation, unfortunately, at a very poor college that if they didn't give me back the money that I was about to pay them, I was going to be hurting. But, you know, you hope that what they're going to do is you're going to pay the bill. They can then turn around and write you a check. If they truly have a charitable intent to do so, it will happen. So if that's what they want to do and that's, and that's cleaner to process on your end, fine. But a, a, gift, a gift in kind would be just as effective for their contribution. Part B? Okay, the letter would, okay, so these are like for personal care, care items for an ongoing project for, for needy, needy families, etc. Um, a gift in kind would be, would be adequate as long as someone in the church has verified that this individual did give this. Now, as I mentioned a while ago, in regards to the cash gift, they only need an acknowledgement for an individual item, an individual gift of 250 or more. So if you're talking baby wipes and diapers, and they've got a receipt from Walmart, and you know they they bring it to the church. You know when I when I take a bag of stuff to Goodwill, and we do that quite a lot, or we have Country Closet, little Amish Mennonite store in our little little country town that we live in. Um, you know we just get this little acknowledgement. You know two bags of personal items, or you know et cetera, et cetera. So. They really don't need even the church to prove that as much, unless as long as they have some kind of written receipt that says the, the yes, the church received it. 
they can itemize it out all themselves. A lot of, a lot of people, if, they, if they're regularly doing their own taxes and they have a particular tax software that they use, those, those companies actually provide even nowadays. I use taxact.com, their software. They have a deduction tracker software that if I wanted to do my, any kind of gift in kind, I can record that every time I make a contribution. I can put that in there. It's waiting for me when next time I go do my taxes. So they need less of an acknowledgement from the church. The church could just say, thank you for your one bag of personal goods. They've got a list of everything that was in that bag. That you know, They have to prove it. They have to prove it. Let's go over here, John. Okay. And probably about a year or so, we're probably going to spell. Okay. So, do you have a, what do you want to call it, a checklist? Or, or do you have any kind of a checklist that we can get so that as we head to this, this separation, that we can uh, make sure we cover everything? Do we have a checklist for a church transitioning from parent-affiliated to network-affiliated, or are you thinking going general counsel, taking the full step? Okay, but still be would it be a general counsel then. Okay, I would probably I would recommend I don't have anything personally because um, you're talking more more than just what I would deal with in that world. But I would I would recommend talking to uh, John Musgrave in our church development office or Sarah Snavely, his assistant, because they work with our churches that are making those transitions all the time. And so I'm sure that they would have something available to you of all the things you need to, all those ducks that need to be in a row for, for what's needed. Absolutely. For, you know, secretary of state filings. Um, you know, do you have your own EIN at this point in time? Or are you still, so, so there, there are, um, there's a, uh, Dan Busby writes an annual book. He's got two other co-authors. His name is Dan Busby. He is the Richard Hammer of the Southern Baptist Convention, if you know who Richard Hammer is. He's, there. He's, not, a, he's not a lawyer like Dr. Hammer is, but he's the CPA at, uh, that used to be at the Southern Baptist Convention. He president of the uh, Ev- Evangelical Council for Fiscal Accountability, ECFA. Um, he writes an annual book. There's a great one. It's, called, it's simply called the Zondervan. It's put out by Zondervan. Um, and then whatever year, 2016 Church Tax and Financial Guide. And that is one I used to actually teach from. It's a really, it's, it's Dr. Hammer's books are up here and his are down here for, for us normal people to be able to read. Um, church, church Tax and Financial Guide. And it does have, here's the stuff to start an organization, all the things you need to get in a, in a row. Okay. Lending resources. A uh, few of them come to mind off the top of my head. Uh, obviously, the first one I, I'm always kind of contractually, but not really, obligated to say. As somebody's got financial services, financial solutions, um, they uh, out of Springfield, Missouri. They are affiliated with headquarters, um, and they, they do church loans night and day, it seems like. Uh, if you want something a little more local, his uh, hisfund.org. I think, or try.com, they are from the, Penn, the Pennsylvania-Delaware district, Pendel, 
and it, his fund is is a is a church lending group that uh, works with AG churches quite a lot. Absolutely, always pray that. I, I would, if you were if you were a more established church, and I was answering that question, I would say certainly talk to your local bank. But being a being a church plant that's starting out as a pack, probably not ready to go there yet, because you. Do you do you have but do you have your own three years of history of your own financials? Yeah, that's the that's the challenge right there. Unless the unless your parent church is going to get involved, which I probably wouldn't be as likely. Um, but AG Financial, uh, his fund, um, Church Extension Plan out of California would probably be my third recommendation um, of of any of those. Anything else? Okay. Oh, Marcia, you, I saw it. I always recommend it. Absolutely, I keep just a digital copy. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Just so if there's a, I never got your letter. You know, you know, just in case. Yeah, that's what I'm, I keep a digital copy. When I send one, I, send, I, I just save a digital copy of it. Yeah. The other question is about this corporate insurance. Um, so say a husband and wife both work at the church, and the church provides insurance. Well, I should say the church... The church, pay, the church reimburses for coverage? The church should reimburse for coverage. Okay. Okay. Should the Okay. Um, and there there used to be uh, this major the lead pastor by himself and I had uh, you know two other pastors working with him full time. And and if he doesn't provide insurance for them, what does he do now for him? This is where having that, um, see, when you, when you give a raise, sorry, the question was, what do you do when you had a pastor who was so low that was receiving insurance from the church, still, still receiving that insurance, but now has other pastors on staff? The others are not receiving insurance. What do you do in that scenario? Let me ask you a, a question before I give any kind of answer. Are those other individuals on somebody else's insurance? They're not attached, but are, and are they the primary on those uh, on that insurance, or are they on a spouse's insurance? They're primary. Okay. What I would recommend, and this is, you know, here's the here's the funny situation. Well, is the church reimbursing at all for theirs for the set, for the other two people? Okay. So we have one pastor that's being reimbursed for insurance, two that are not, and we're hired with that understanding. Technically speaking, the church is still compliant because they only have one person they're doing that for. They only have one. Well, because that's one plan, though. They, they only it's one plan. So it's one plan. And so I'm assuming that one of those spouses is the participant and then the, the other is really a spouse. That person happens to work at the church. Yes. But 
I am going to say, don't tell me if I'm wrong, that that spouse has got coverage because she's the spouse and would have it whether she worked there or not. Okay. <laughs> so technically speaking, they are still compliant because they're, they're in that one participant world. Do I like it? It doesn't, I mean, it's technically okay. It doesn't taste good to me. I would probably in that scenario say this is where when you give that raise that is not at all attached to insurance. Because <laughs> then this is his salary and this is their salary. This is all hypothetical. We know that, right? It's all hypothetical. <laughs> She's really wishing I hadn't used her name while ago. This is still just for the one pastor who also is being reimbursed. <sighs> Technically speaking, um, let, me, let me back up. Let me back up. Uh, it, you know, what about, because I didn't put it on the, on the recording here, what about a medical reimbursement fund that has been associated with the individual receiving reimbursements? Um, this is my understanding. I'm certainly open to being incorrect, but it is my understanding that that scenario would still be okay because you're still in the one, one recipient area and the one recipient area still allows for um, the medical expenses to be reimbursed by the employer for that individual. Um, uh, as, a, as a side note to that, though, for anybody else, the standalone health reimbursement arrangement is no more. At one time, an employer could do that, where they could just have, that. that's, that's how they manage their, because their, a lot of churches would do this, where they'd have a pastor, pastor, just give us your bills, and we will take care of it. So there was a time, and it's before the Affordable Care Act, there was a time when that was a possibility. Unfortunately, that's not a possibility anymore uh, under the under the Affordable Care Act. That if that's if it's not if it's not a part of an insurance scenario where there's got to be insurance involved. There, it, at one time, you could just have a straight reimbursement for medical expenses, but now it's only if it's associated with a medical insurance plan, health insurance plan. Unless you're specifically talking dental or vision, but that's minimal compared to health insurance. Are they still, at one time a church was providing health savings accounts for ministers, and this was in, in addition to or in lieu, of. in lieu of? 
they were providing health savings accounts uh, for their ministers. Is that still a possibility? Not in the scenario that you just described, because that's that's the standalone health reimbursement arrangement, basically. Because HSA and HSA now to have an HSA, it can only be used when it is coupled with a high deductible health insurance plan. That's, No. Okay. No. It's right. ACA. Yeah, they just they just went away basically because now because they basically they just said that the, the HSA can only be used when coupled with a high deductible health plan. So, so that uh, answers my next question: Can it increase that HSA contribution? No. What is the difference between HSA and HRA? Uh, let me do HRA first. HRA is health reimbursement arrangement. It is it is an um, uh, an arrangement that is established for the benefit of employees by an employer. It is only employer dollars that are contributed into that. They are a use it or lose it in a given year, which you hope you know. No one hopes they get sick and have to use it, but that's then provided by the employer if if it's needed. So it is provided by employers, if, you know, if if employees need it. A health savings account is different in that is different in that it can be funded both by employer and employee contributions. Again, it must be used in conjunction with a high deductible health plan. But in that scenario, if that is, if that is the case, uh, then what can happen is an employee. And there are contribution limits uh, based on each, you know, each year for, for both parties. But then the employee can have much like a flexible spending account where they can have money taken out pre-tax and go into a health savings account. They can do that. But then also the employer can add money to that if they want to provide that kind of benefit to the employee. The difference being those are now the employee's dollars where the health reimbursement stays with the employer until there's actually a claim that it gets paid out for. So it may not ever all get used. But in HSA, the employer, if they agree to it, it's got to go every, every time and every year. And then it may not get used in a given year by an employee, and then it, roll, it can roll over. They, they maintain it. Whereas a flexible spending account that an employee may have deducted funds for if they didn't use it in a given year, unless they have a carryover provision, which most plans do have a little bit of one, then they lose those dollars that they had set aside and that they could not uh, use for whatever uh, medical purpose. Yep. AG Financial, no, because they don't actually do that. AG Credit Union would have that available for you. Um, I don't know. I mean, we have one from our, per, our, our local bank for our office, so I, I, I don't know if there are others that would be. I mean, if you wanted to keep it in the family, you, you know, AGCU would be an option. Evangelical Christian Community Credit Union, ECCU would be an option. Um, you know, I am... We were planting a church, and it was my 
firm conviction that we would not use credit cards in our in our church environment. Uh, so what I am in the process of doing is st- setting up for our staff members that need a card. We are setting up multiple checking accounts, and I'm going to assign an, a debit card to an individual that's attached to a specific account. So they're the only ones that uses that account. And then I will fund that with my predetermined, very arbitrary amount, probably $500. And when they turn in all their receipts and their valid expenses, then I will transfer money back in to replenish that $500, back up to $500. Um, So that's just a philosophy for me. also, being a brand new church plant, they probably couldn't get a credit card if we wanted to. So, yes. Yeah. The kind of, the question is: Does it if the, if someone does not contribute more than two hundred fifty dollars, do you have to provide a contribution statement? Here is the interesting thing: No nonprofit has to provide a giving statement. Let that sink in for just a second, and then I'm going to say, but here's the catch. Every nonprofit does because they want people to keep giving. <laughs> okay. Now, here, so, so here's the situation. The donor does not need an acknowledgement unless it is a single gift of 250 or more. They don't have to satisfy the IRS with anything in writing unless they gave a single date transaction of of $250 or more. Um, what you don't want to do on your giving statements, I'm going to say always give an annual giving statement, absolutely. And there's a couple things that need to be on it. It needs to have an itemization of the gifts. I've encountered a few churches in my internal audit world that they provide thank you for your contributions of $3,250 for the 2015 year. The problem is that doesn't tell us did they give a gift of 250 or more. So they can't properly substantiate that they did. So you want to give all of the gifts listed on a given day. The other thing that it has to have is something along the lines of unless uh, no goods were, uh, I'm always going to be, unless otherwise stated, no goods or services provided in exchange for your contribution. Basically, the nonprofit language that validates that it was a tax-deductible gift, that you can say that you didn't give them a benefit for receipt of those resources. So itemization obviously their name and everything but you definitely need to have an itemization and then that language that says no goods or services were other than intangible religious benefits that's the that's the phrase i was looking for uh were received in exchange for your contribution so yeah you don't actually have to provide a gift here's here's the thing here's the thing someone someone recently i read an article uh someone had contributed twenty five thousand dollars to a specific thing at a church uh, filed their taxes and then they got audited and the IRS um, disallowed their deduction of tw- for the $25,000 gift because they did not receive, they had not actually had in their possession the letter from the church before they filed their taxes. So we don't have to provide a gift receipt of any kind. We always do, and it is highly recommended that it happen by January 31st because that's when everybody is accustomed to getting those you know, from all their employer stuff and everything. So, um, so we do that, but, uh, so that $25,000. So then, 
gift got denied, declined or, or disallowed, well, then they got the letter from the, from, the, from the church. But then the IRS said, it doesn't matter. You did not have it, the contemporaneous language for the gift in kind. You did not have a contemporaneous acknowledgement of your contribution before you filed your taxes because you have to have it in your possession before you file your taxes. So they, so they literally were the first people ever to give $25,000, uh, no strings attached to a church. No, because again, you, you, they didn't have, the, you have to have, before you, the, you file your taxes. So you've already filed them once to be able to amend them. So you have to have that acknowledgement in hand before you file your taxes for it to qualify. Last question. No goods or services were received, other, uh, no goods or services other than intangible religious benefits were received in exchange for your contribution or something along those lines. Email me. I can bounce it back to you. I've got it on, I've got it on something. No, because they got goods. No, they, they, well, I mean, I mean, if you want to get nickel and dime, I guess you could say, you know, $5 of your $20 was not, you know, the value of your candy was actually this, so we're giving you an acknowledgement. You know, you paid $20, the value of it, what you bought was 5 so you get a credit for 15 But that's, they, you had a bake sale, you, it's, yeah, no, it's not, stay, yeah, it's not, just say it's not deductible. It's not deductible. Thank you all so much. Hope you had a great day. Sorry I kept you a minute late. The next session starts in nine minutes over back in Gray's Chapel.